That is a great video. When I watched that in the first service this morning, um, I had a flashback to being a Boy Scout, um, going on a major hike. I think it was my first major hike. Uh, and I was in California, so we were uh, near Palm Springs, so we were going to hike up to Mount San Jacinto, which I think is 6,700 feet. So from the desert floor uh, up 6,700 feet to snow, we hiked in snow for uh, one day uh, to get up to the, the top. But I didn't have a pack, so I, uh, my dad's best friend, Nick Nicholas, had been a Marine in World War II. Uh, he was on Iwo Jima as a BAR machine gunner uh, and a great man of God. Uh, I went to Nick's house, and uh, he loaned me his World War II pack that he had. They do not make them uh, like they do today. This one had a, these straps that had a metal chain attached to each shoulder. Uh, and I'm like, after I, I carried that thing for two days, I was like, how do, you, how do you do jungle fighting in islands with this pack like this? It just blew me away. And my pack was like uber heavy. Uh, and so when we got up to the top, uh, after hiking around in the snow and freezing to death, and we got up there, uh, it was time for lunch, and I hadn't packed my pack, my mother packed my pack, and so I was like, why is my pack so heavy, so I got up there, and we got this huge stone slab at the top of the peak, and we all, the whole troop sat down to eat lunch, so everybody's digging in their pack, getting out their food, uh, and I reached in there, and there were a bunch of cans in there, <laughs> cans, I'm like, what in the world, uh, and so I started looking at the cans, and I, I like sardines and tomato sauce, it's wonderful, <laughs> You just open it, they're ready to eat, it's awesome. But I don't know why, I just like them, and I like oysters in a can too. So anyway, uh, so I open them, there's cans of sardines in there. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, how heavy these are. Uh, so number one, the spiritual rule is never let your mother pack your pack. Uh, if you're 45, just, you know, say, hey mom. Uh, the other thing is when I opened those at 6,700 feet and that smell went through, the, the entire troop was sick instantly. And I was enjoying all those fish while they were all grossed out. But um, that's a spiritual truth. Uh, you, you do put things in your pack like they don't need to be in there, right? And just take some of the, let Christ take some of those things out, those rocks you're hauling around. So those videos are some, sometimes meaningful when I need to inspect them to be. It's good to have you in uh, God's house. Uh, there's uh, information in your bulletin on the National Apologetics Conference. It's coming up in two weeks. So if you'd like to come, uh, you need to... Uh, uh, sign up right away. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is the main speaker. Uh, Chip Ingram's going to be there. I went to school with Chip at Dallas Seminary for four years. I haven't seen him since 85. That should be fun. We've not changed, I'm sure, a bit. Uh, Hugh Ross is going to be there, the physicist. Uh, Josh McDowell is going to be there. So it's going to be great. Uh, they e uh, emailed me and told me I am uh, the first breakout speaker. Uh, my topic is the logic of transgenderism. So is it logical? And so it's going to be interesting as we talk about that. So I encourage you, a lot of people are coming. And then everybody keeps asking me like what hotel I'm staying at. So I'm at the Marriott on Ray Road, which is R-A-E Road, which is just down the street from the church. So it can be like a little BCC convention or something. So uh, and enjoy to ha have you there. A number are already coming. So we are what book? Romans. Uh, we are in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And I invite you to turn there if you aren't already there. Uh, I will just tell you up front, uh, these verses right here um, are some of the most complex in the New Testament. Uh, so we'll probably finish around 4 o'clock today, so just hang with me. Uh, they're very complicated, but they're very powerful. Uh, when I was uh, in my, um, taking advanced Greek in, high, in college, they, uh, I was taking a class in Romans, and they assigned this to me as my pericope to study. 
so I know this passage pretty well. I then came back in my sixth year of Greek at Dallas Seminary and took a class on Romans with Dr. Harold Honer. Uh, and uh, again, I had this passage to ponder over uh, at, an, at another level in Greek. Uh, so I, I'm, this is one of my favorite passages. Uh, it's an amazing passage. There's a lot of milk in it, a lot of meat, but uh, much, much to learn. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, uh, we just pray you would anoint us uh, with the Spirit to teach as you promised he would. And uh, may we who are your saints understand uh, the greatness of our salvation in an even more fa- fantastic way today as we contemplate the benefits of being saved. And may the lost among us that are searching, uh, looking for truth, find it uh, as they talk, uh, or as we talk and they think their way through this great passage. Might they come to know the Christ is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, my wife and I uh, spend a lot of time flying back and forth between here and California because that's where the grandchildren are. Uh, and uh, so Liz has actually been there for two weeks, uh, flew out there uh, right before the storm hit uh, to uh, watch the grandchildren while uh, Amanda and Greg went to a pastor's conference. Uh, and after Liz did that for a week, she told me at the end of this week, she goes, I am so tired. <laughs> uh, she said, there's a reason why young people have children. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you know, yeah, you do get tired, don't you? Uh, and so she's, she's uh, been having fun, but she's looking forward to coming back. But all the flying that we do back and forth, or we fly to Israel, uh, we'll go over there and you know, fly to Frankfurt, then down to, down to uh, Tel Aviv. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you're on a plane that has first-class seating, how much you ever just eyeball that seating and thought to yourself, well, that'd be fun. You know, especially when you're flying to Frankfurt or somewhere, it's like, oh man, those lucky people. What are the seats like? They're like a couch big seat, reclines. The armrests are like for the size of Godzilla. I mean, they're huge. Uh, it's unbelievable. So we always w- have walked by there and said, you know, it'd be fun to, fun to fly, you know, first class, but you know, it's not in our price range. And, uh, and so one, uh, last, my last trip to Israel actually uh, called the airline, I think it was Lufthansa, uh, and said, hey, what would it cost to upgrade me to first class just for curiosity? It was $10,000. <laughs> That's what I did on the phone. <gasps> Nine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do that. $10,000, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, so there's no way I'm going to do that. But this is part of my sermon. This guy's meandering. I, I don't meander. Uh, this has everything to do with my sermon. So uh, last year, Liz was flying uh, in California and she was on an airline, not Southwest, which we, what we usually fly because they don't, have, you don't see first class on a Southwest airline. Uh, it's just every man for himself on those seats, you know, uh, but uh she called me, she was in San Diego, and she was getting ready to come back, and she said, they've met this airline that I'm on has messed up my flight, and I mean, really messed it up, and, uh, and so I've, I'm at the ticket counter, and they've told me they want to just show their uh, appreciation, and they're sorry for messing up my ticket, so they're going to put me in first class for the trip back to D.C. Like, are you kidding me? I am not there. I don't get to enjoy this, but she said, yeah, that's what they're going to do, uh, and, and she was so excited to go first class. Uh, she had never done it before, just to see what it was like, the, you know, the seat that reclines, the whole shebang. So when you're flying first class, like, what kind of things do you have other than the extra leg room and extra wide body room and everything? What, what else happened? Towels, usually, like, heated. Yeah, heated towels to lay over your face, get a massage as you're going. What else do you get when you go? Food. You get food? Yeah. Like, not a little bag of peanuts? Yeah. Here, eat on this for the next five hours. No, they actually give you food uh, and maybe some silverware, like real silverware. Uh, anything else? Yeah, champagne or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's just better. And then they close that curtain for total privacy. Yeah. But if you're like me, you're kind of open and kind of watching. What are they doing up there? Yeah. Uh, so when you fly first class, you're expecting special service or what I would call benefits. 
Now, what is the theological about that? Everything? Like in what way? Well, I don't know how you look at it. I mean, this is how I look at it. Uh, Jesus is offering transportation on an airline headed to where? Heaven. You think it's second class? No, it's first class. It's first class. When he saved you and redeemed you and put it on his plane head in heaven, it's first class all the way. And Paul understands first class going to heaven. He's written an entire chapter about the benefits of that first class. You see the relationship between the two? Only two people saw the relationship and the analogy. Yeah, so what are the benefits flying first class to heaven according to Paul? Let's review them. Why do we review? Brain cells die daily. I've told you this before. I'm Marty, in case you forgot. Uh, so let's review. What are, what are those benefits? We've seen in chapter 5. So uh, the first benefit, flying first class with salvation because of Jesus, is you have inner peace. That you know your sin's taken care of. You don't worry about that anymore. There's that shalom in the middle of your soul. Number two, Jesus personally gave you introduction to the Father. Boldly you come before the throne of God. Why? You're a child of God. You don't have to fear walking there. Uh, three, you have hope. Like what hope? Well, we talked about that. Hope that you will, sh you will see the, the kavod, the glory of God one day. Uh, when I, uh, Liz and I drove down from uh, Northern California down to uh, La Jolla, uh, Scripps Hospital, when her sister was dying of cancer at 33 years old, it took us about seven, eight hours to drive down there, got to the hospital in 1993, uh, uh, parked the car, went inside, uh, went up to the room, uh, and we were with her for just a few minutes, uh, and she, she was sitting Indian style on her bed, and uh, she said, uh, Marty, would you pray for me now that you're here? Oh, absolutely. And I prayed for her. And then she leaned back and she died. I mean, like right then. She waited till we got there to the hospital, and she died. And I told, because I'd led her sister to Christ about a year before that, because uh, she was sitting in my car in the driveway, and she looked at me, and she said, Marty, I don't understand my husband and I have, you know, a million dollars in the bank and we have a, you know, a BMW and a Jaguar. We have all these things, but you and Liz, your relationship has something that we don't have. What do you have that we don't have? And I said, well, we have Christ. Amen. So she trusted Christ in my car. Well, a year later, she was in God's presence. And I, and I told Liz that day that her sister passed away, you know, I said, as she leaned back in the pillow and took her last breath, literally, I, I told Liz, what, is, what does she have now? She, she has the the hope. She sees the glory of God. She's in God. You can see the body was just a shell. Uh, she also in her, her trial had perspective in her trial that God was with her even in that. I mean, she had just had a baby. She got cancer when she had a baby. She did. Uh, that little, the, the youngest daughter never knew her mom. The other daughter, I think, was three. You know, and it was sad. I mean, but, but God gave us all a family and her, her a, a new perspective in trials. That God uses trials to shape and hone the spirit. So when I, when I did her funeral and hundreds came, surgical staff came, it was amazing how many people came to Christ because of the witness of Mary Beth. It was amazing. I mean, they came up to me after the, at the home afterward uh, asking me to explain Christ. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Uh, I could tell you tons of, about that. Uh, but she had a new perspective in trials. Why? Because she knew Christ. The God who uses trials to shape and hone the soul. And she had assurance of salvation that nothing could take it, not even cancer. Nothing. Nothing. Assurance. But Paul says, hey, I've given you all the benefits of faith. But he, he said, there's one more that I have to share with you. And he's going to speak a long time about it. Like verses 12 uh, through 21 about it. Because uh, he's so excited about the, the, the sixth benefit of being a believer. Or, you know, flying first class with Jesus. And what he's going to do, he's going to tell you that you are reigning as a believer in life. Now. You're reigning in life because you were born reigning in death because you were born under the sign of Adam. 
But he said, once you become a believer, you move from death to life. You reign in life. He's going to wax eloquent about that. But first what he's going to do, he's going to set up a contrast between the first Adam, who reigns in death, and then he's going to come back around and go, let's compare that reign of Adam to the reign of the second Adam, Jesus. He's going to say one's about disobedience and death. The other one is about life and obedience. So we want to contrast the two. Uh, and the, the question here is going to be as a believer, since Adam's misdeed brought sin and death into the world, is it possible for sin to somehow circumvent my faith if I falter along the way as a child of God? Paul's going to say no. Because when you reign in life, you reign. It doesn't come and go. So let's look at the, the reign of death through the first Adam in verses 12 uh, to 14. Here's what Paul says. It says, therefore, in light of what I just said in the, those other verses about the benefits of faith, just as through the one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, uh, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, the word that he uses here, uh, therefore, is dia tuto. Uh, when you see that, uh, it, you, I always circle it in my Greek text uh, because it is a summation of an argument like an attorney would use in a court. He's going to say, in light of all the things I just gave you, all my evidences, uh, it culminates in this final uh, argument. Uh, and he's going to show you the, the greatness of salvation through this contrast between Adam and Jesus, the, the greater Adam. So he says, therefore, and then he's going to say it's a comparative argument, just as. That's the comparative side. He says, sin came through the deed of one man. One sin led to the sin of the many, is what he's going to say. We'll talk about that in just a minute. First, I want to point out the fact that uh, when you go to the university, one thing that they try to do to you straight away is expunge the fact that Adam was a historical individual. Oh, it's just totally myth mythological. He wasn't real. They have to do this by definition of their worldview because if Adam really walked the planet, really existed, then there was a garden and there was a temptation in the garden from the devil uh, and man fell into sin because of that. And it's a completely different worldview than what the world wants to tell you in their different worldviews that are contrary to that. Adam was a historical figure uh, who had an entire garden to himself with his wife. Uh, absolute beauty. Uh, no sin whatsoever. Could you imagine all the animals come to you? Some people ask me, like, why don't you have a cat? Because when I've had a cat, they never come to me. <laughs> so it's part of the sin, I think. You know, it's like, what's with a cat? They just always leave me, you know? Uh, but you can imagine, there's no sin. Animals come to you. You could go wade into the water uh, uh, in the Edenic earth and, and, and pat on the water surface. A fish would come to you. Imagine the fishing as a fisherman. I'm just saying. What happened when sin came? Well, the, the animals went all away from you. There's anger. There's sin. They're carnivorous now, etc. And so Adam's in this perfect environment. Uh, and he existed because Jesus said he did. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus said uh, to the religious leaders of the day, and he answered and he said unto them, uh, I have a question for you guys. Uh, have you, of all people, not read? You have to stop and ask yourself, was Jesus ever sarcastic? Why are you laughing? Because he was. He was. Uh, uh, but, but not in a mean-spirited way, but to point them to truth. He's telling them, you guys have the PhDs in the Torah. Haven't you read the Torah? Uh, he says, well, what does it say? Uh, well, that he who created them, Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, he made them what? Male and female with the ability to interchange? It's a whole other sermon topic, but is that, what, is that what it says? No, he made them male and female. Did he make a mistake when he made them male and female? No. Did he make a mistake when he made you male or female? No. 
I mean, according to Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made to tamper with your female or maleness is to tamper with the very work of God Almighty. You don't make a mistake. That's a whole other sermon. But he said he made you male and female from the very beginning. And then he said, and then for this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. How do they become one flesh? Binary construction. Who made them binary? God himself. And you would think you could mess with the binary construction? No, that doesn't solve your issues. So we live in a broken world. How did we get broken? There was a real man and a real woman who only had one assignment. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Enjoy the rest of the Edenic environment. And they, well, that wasn't enough for them. They messed up big time. They went contrary to God. And when they did that, you can see the cause-effect relationship. Sin passed upon all the world. And death passed upon all the world. Spiritual and physical death. Because he says, as Paul says, we all sinned. Now this is where, uh, you know, fair-minded, justice-minded uh, Americans come to bat and they ask questions like this because I'm an American and I understand the questions. I've asked them myself, but I've heard these a million times. So they, people read this and they think, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so Adam, I mean, if, okay, so if he existed, he ate of the forbidden fruit and, and then God plunged him into sin, broke off our relationship between man and God because of his sin. But then you're telling me we all sinned? Hey, if I was there, there is no way I would have done that. Have you heard this? I've heard this. I mean, I wouldn't have done that. Well, I, the, the answer is pretty simple. What happened historically? Did you get the chance to do it or not do it? No. no. God gave that chance to a Adam and to Eve. So your, your premise is erroneous because you don't know how you would perform in that environment. You probably would have done the same thing. Uh, but it wasn't that set up that way anyway. God set it up with Adam, not you. We all sinned. Well, then you're going to say, well, that's just totally not the God I know. That's just not loving. I mean, we all sin because he, he sinned? Well, uh, that's exactly what it says. Uh, there's two ways to look at how God views sin, uh, especially in this chapter. And this is contrary to Americana thinking. Uh, you can take two views, basically. There is what is called the federal headship view, where uh, Adam was your federal head according to this plan. Uh, enjoy the entire uh, Indianic environment. Eat whatever you want. Just don't eat of that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree. Don't eat that tree. When he ate, he was your representative. So when he fell, we all fell. That's one view. The other view is the seminal view. Meaning, you were there seminally in Adam. Seed form. So that when he sinned, you were there in God's mind. So that when he sinned, not only was he your representative, but you were there in seed form. It's as if you did it. Uh, if you want to read more about that, Hebrews chapter 7 verses uh, 9 to 10 um, gives support for that. Uh, about the Melchizedekian priesthood uh, and tithes being paid to Melchizedek, the priesthood from the time of uh, Abraham, but Levi being in the seed form of Melchizedek. Uh, you can read it in that whole thing in, uh, in Hebrews 7, 9 to 10. It's a seminal view. It's, it's, uh, that's the view I think is the proper view. We were all there. Uh, and when you look at that and you say, well, I, I just don't think that's fair. Well, that, that's how God views things. Uh, that it's called the doctrine of solidarity, that the sin of the one becomes the sin of the many. Uh, on my toolbox, on my uh, workbench in my, uh, in my garage, I have a, a bunch of, bunch of pegboards, a bunch of tools, but I have a, a box uh, that has like 48 little drawers in it. And there's all kinds of, there's wood screws in there, you know, you name it, washers, lock washers, everything I need's in there. It's finding the right drawers the, is the thing. But I got it all organized. But we tend to kind of look at our lives like that, that, well, 
uh, it, what I do here in my private life doesn't affect my public life, sinful-wise. Oh, yeah, it does. Because if you sin in that one box of your life, God says, all the boxes are guilty. Uh, if you go back and read jo uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 6, uh, it's a very sobering passage. Uh, when Israel goes into uh, Jericho, uh, after the walls come down, God gives them one command. He says, when you go into that city uh, uh, of the Canaanites, after I bring the walls down, do not take anything. Don't take anything. Uh, the gold and the silver is for worship of me. Keep that for the priest. But don't you take anything. There was one man, his name was Achan, A-C-H-A-N, Achan. Uh, he got in there and he eyeballed a Babylonian garment. Now Babylon was about 600 miles away. So the fact that this garment was there, it's priceless. And he sees this, and I'm, it doesn't say in the text why he took it, but it's probably, my wife would love this. What did God say? Thou shalt not take one thing. He didn't just take that. It, the scripture tells us he took 200 shekels of silver that he saw and a gold bar that weighed 50 shekels. A lot of money. His, his problem was greed. Uh, if you read uh, uh, Joshua chapter 7, uh, the whole account, uh, eventually Israel finds out that Achan has done this because things don't go well for them in battle. Uh, they find out who's the sinner, and it's Achan, and he confesses his sin. Yes, I did contrary to the, what God wanted. How did God respond to Moses when they found out? Well, they killed, they killed Achan and his entire family and every animal he owned and all of their clothing and belongings. They got rid of it all. I mean, when I first read that, when I was reading through the Old Testament, studying it, I mean, like, that's sobering. Because God views sin way different than we do. We have a much lighter view of sin. God says, well, here, let me draw the line in the sand with Achan to tell you, when I say thou shalt not do this, let it be known to you, you should not deviate and think it's progressive. No, it's one man's sin can become the contaminant for those in his family line. Same thing with Adam. Now, Paul's going to move in verse 13 to say uh, something very interesting about the Torah. It says, for until the law, uh, the Torah, sin was in the world, reigning supremely. Uh, but sin is not imputed or reckoned to somebody's account when there's no law. So it's like, if there was no DMV manual, could they hold you accountable if you did whatever you wanted to do? No, because it, it didn't say that I couldn't drive on the sidewalk to pass cars like someone did when Nathan was driving the other day. He called me on the phone. He's like, Dad, there's a crazy man. He's on Braddock Road by George Mason driving on the sidewalk to pass people. Is that permissible? No, because the DMV manual, I'm sure, might address us something like that. But Paul's saying, when you think about it, uh, when, there is, when the law's not explicit, well, it, it, God wouldn't hold you to it if you didn't know. But these people died between Adam's day and the time of the Mosaic law. They died anyway. Why? Because they were sinners under the sign of Adam. Uh, there was a sign uh, that I read one time. Uh, there was a, a water park down in uh, Florida. And they, the sign uh, that I read, was reading about, it, the sign said this. Next to a pool of porpoises. And I'm sorry, I don't know the plural for porpoises. Is it porpie or porpoises? Or? Porpoises. Thank, thank you. So educated on the front row. Thank you. Uh, pool of porpoises. Sign said, do not put your finger in the blowhole. You have to ask another question. Somebody obviously did that. Can't you see like a little 10-year-old? Hey, Johnny, watch this. You know, if you do that, what happens to the little fish? They can't breathe. So what did they do? They put up a sign. Do not let children or anybody stick your finger in there. Now, can you hold the child accountable if there's no sign? 
Well, common sense would say you shouldn't do that. But, it, you know, not as much as when there's a sign there. So what Paul says, when God hadn't given the law, people still sinned anyway and died because of it. Why? Because they were reigning under the, the, the life of sin. They couldn't get away from it. Because of their relationship to the first Adam. That's what he says in verse 14. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And who's Adam? The first Adam? The historical Adam? Paul says he's a type. He's a type. Of who? Well, of him who was to come. Adam 2. Adam 2. Death reigns under Adam 1. You were born under the reign of Adam 1. Uh, God gives you the option through the work of Christ to change who's reigning over your life and move to Adam number two, who reigns in life. Uh, that's what Paul's going to spend the majority of his time on through a series of contrasts. Uh, he's going to show you the greater work of the second Adam, Jesus. Verse 15, he says, uh, on the contrary, he says, but uh, the gift, the free gift uh, that Jesus is going to give uh, people who repent is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God by the gift, by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, but the free gift. Uh, the very first word in the, in the Greek text is Allah, A-L-L-A, Allah. Uh, it's, the word, it's a hard contrastive. The other one is de. It's a softer contrast. Whenever you see, see Allah in the text, you should take note, because it's a major contrast. The contrast here is between the work of the first Adam and the work of the second Adam. And in the English text, you can see there's a copula here, a, a verb, a finite verb, where he says, uh, but there, uh, the gift is not like. In the Greek text, there's no verb. Why? Well, it's called ellipsis, where he purposely left out the verb. Why? He's going to make it so stilted, you're going to like have a hard time reading over it because he's going to force you to pay attention to what he just said. He says, no, when I think about the, the gift of Christ, radically different. And then he's going to take the, the words... Uh, where he talks about uh, the, the gift is not like the trespass, the transgression. Uh, that's paraptoma, transgression. That's a, it's, it's a trespass. You saw a sign that said no trespassing. What'd you do? You lifted the barbed wire, climbed on the other side. That's paraptoma. He says that sin is not like the gift. So paraptoma is not like the gift charisma, like charismatic. Uh, it, they sound similar. Paul does, did this on purpose to say paraptoma, sin, is eclipsed by the charisma, the grace of God Almighty overcomes the sin. Uh, do you understand the gift of the, of the first Adam? Uh, or the gift of the second Adam as opposed to the first Adam? Uh, his life uh, gives you life. Second thing Paul says in verse 16. He says, the gift that Jesus gives to people who come to him in faith is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the transgressions, from the many transgressions resulting in justification. So Adam sinned one time and plunged the entire human race into sin and spiritual death. Jesus on the other side of the equation, arguing from the lesser to the greater, he covers the sin of the many, of all sin of all time through his obedience. He covers that sin and his atonement. So the two key words here are condemnation, first Adam, justification, second Adam. Here's the point. Do you think that God who justifies the sinner in his court of law by faith, like the child of a faith, or the faith of, faith of a child, do you think God looks down to that child later and says, you've had a really hard month spiritually speaking, haven't you? I'm going to unjustify you. Now Paul says he's not going to do that. It was a gift that he gave you. It's a gift. 
And it's, it's loaded with his grace. In verse 17, he gives another contrast in verse 17. It says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of the grace and of the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Uh, the statement here is a matter of fact in the Greek text. It's, a, it's what is called a first-class condition, uh, where Paul is, is stating what is, uh, we all know to be true theologically speaking. Uh, since this transgression of the one brought death, how much more will the work of Christ bring life? It's, far in, it's infinitely better. That's why he uses the word abundance. I was, uh, I was typing in, uh, uh, in, in YouTube this week looking at some of the greatest waterfalls of the world. Uh, and I was eating lunch, looking at some of the waterfalls, and it was a theological uh, venture uh, as I was watching all these waterfalls. Because I was thinking to myself, those waterfalls are like the grace of God in my life. It's not just like a trickle of grace. It's a massive, thunderous pouring of grace. Which means, do you think that that grace that poured all over your soul is not sufficient to keep you saved until you see him face to face? Sure, it's going to keep you saved. Because it has been poured in abundantly all over you. Last, uh, fourth contrast, verse 18. And this is going to sound familiar. Because Paul circles back around. He says, So then as through the one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. That's the first Adam. Even so, the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That's the second Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one the many shall be made righteous. You know, some people look at this and they say, oh, it says that he brought justification of life to all men. He believes in universal salvation. No, he doesn't. Because if you read chapter 2, where Paul says the wrath of God will be revealed one day against people, he, he talks in chapter 2, in verses 1 to 5, how all non-believers make deposits into the vault of wrath, and one day God says the vault is full. See, if he, if he saved everybody, there would be no vault. He's not talking about saving everybody, but the life that he provides is out there. For all those under the sign of the first Adam, all that life is waiting for them to claim it when they come with childlike faith. Then it is theirs. It is theirs. The th key here is condemnation is the first Adam. Commendation is the second Adam. And it says here at the end of this text, the last line, he says, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Uh, the Greek word here, to be made righteous, uh, is a, uh, a term, like a political term, uh, denoting you just place somebody in political office, you appointed them to be whatever they are, the secretary of whatever. You appointed them to this position. He says, when you became a believer, God appointed you to righteousness. Which leads to the question, do you think that since he appointed you to righteousness, he's ever going to take it away from you? No. Paul says, you are his child. He's given you his righteousness. Before Paul wraps up his argument about the reign of life through Christ, uh, he has in the background of his mind his Jewish brethren who are reading the letter. Because he knows he talked about the law earlier when he started. And he's thinking to himself, there are Jewish people going to be reading this, thinking to themselves, hey, Paul, I, I thought obedience to the law saved me. He's going to say, I, I have a heart for you. I want you to let go of your false teaching and embrace the truth of the Torah. So what does he say in verse 20? He says, for the law came in so that transgression would do what? Increase. Uh, how could it increase? Well, if you put a sign out there, more people are going to challenge the sign because they're sinful. It's going to increase. But he said, but where sin increased, what did God do? Well, grace abounded all the more. 
So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through our Jesus Christ, who he says is our Lord. The law came, he said. What did it do? He just told you what is sinful. Showed you what was sin. When you disobeyed the law, uh, it just made more sin happen because you're now being rebellious as Adam was against the law of God. But when God looks down from heaven, he says, yeah, but your activity can't trump my grace. His grace is greater. So if you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, your salvation is not going to ever be lost. Why? His grace abounds. It's that mighty waterfall of your life. And if you're not a Christian today and you're still under the life of the first Adam, I mean, you're under sin and death, well, his grace from the second Adam waits to pour over your soul. There's nothing like that day. Remember what I told you Mary Beth asked me in the car? What's qualitatively different about your marriage and my marriage? Because she had all the money that you would ever want. But she didn't have who? Christ. She was under the first Adam. Well, sitting in my car, my, Ford, my Chevy Caprice Classic. Uh, we sat there on those big old bench seats. And I introduced her to the second Adam, Jesus. Greatest decision she ever made. Uh, have you made that decision? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the wonder of salvation. Of uh, justification by faith. That happens in your courtroom when... A uh, person with childlike faith puts their faith in you as the Savior. The amazing benefits that flow into their soul like a mighty river, might we not forget them. And anyone among us who doesn't yet know the wonder of that salvation, the benefits that come from knowing you, might this be the day they do that. We give you praise and thanks for who you are, and we worship you in Christ's name, amen. Might you have a great day. It looks beautiful outside. God bless you. <laughs>